Words, they get golly hard when they jumble. Jumping over hurdles, slowing verbs like a turtle. Merkin fool, like squirtle and cake gold. Cold blood is with this rhyme scheme, I'm a boss. This is That Got Me Thinking, and I'm Allie Newman. This week, I've been thinking about language, feeling old, righteous killing, and universal mortality. I've been thinking about children, what we leave behind, words, memory, and illusion. My guest today is Tim O'Brien, an incredible master of the 26 letters of the alphabet and stirrer of thought and feeling, the best-selling author of The Things They Carried, a Vietnam person sent to kill in the name of democracy for the benefit of our country, and a conscientious, loving, and dedicated father to Timmy and Tad, two strapping and full-souled young lads. Welcome, Tim, and thank you so much for joining us today on That Got Me Thinking. I'm delighted. Thank you. So I've got to start by saying reading your book was the first time I think um, since I've been doing interviews that a writer got me teary in the preface and I had to stop the book <laughs> and, and re-look at your bio. And and so my first question is, um, was the interview for writing and becoming a writer on This Is Us, did they give you a blank page and, a, and set out Kleenex boxes and, and then give you a timer? Well, that's a nice way of putting it. I, uh, I was hoping people would respond occasionally with some emotion, not just sadness or tears, but also now and then laughter. That life is very rarely just one or the other. It's almost always, at least for me, a mix. And that's been true of parenthood, of being a, an old father. So yeah, there were definitely moments of laughter throughout the book. Um, I should have not- notated those as well because they were numerous. Um, you're you're an extremely gifted writer. You, your words dance and glide and and jibe on the page um, from the outset. And you've well, thank just thank you. But uh, you know, it's not just a gift. It's uh, it's mostly hard work. I don't think I am particularly gifted, um, but I am particularly stubborn and. Uh, the sentences and the paragraphs and ultimately all the chapters in the book were the consequence of hour after hour of rewriting and, you know, cussing to myself saying, you can do better than this. You read that in, you know, some other place and, or it's too familiar that, uh, in a way, I think every writer is pretty much uh, like me. There are a few exceptions, probably John Updike didn't hesitate and maybe James Joyce, but most of us care enough about language to be painstaking and self-critical. And that for me, at least, good books are not made um, with just raw ability. They're made with the only raw ability really is, is tenacity. Do you think you would be as good a writer if you were equally tenacious, but less hard on yourself? No, without the tenacity, I'd, I'd be a mediocre writer and probably be able to write letters and postcards. No, and no, no, no. With the tenacity, you have tenacity and determination. But one thing I noted just in, in the brief time we're speaking now, but, but throughout the book is you're really hard on yourself. I am. I am. I'm hard on myself uh, for good reason that when I read the books by other people um, that, that with which I sometimes find fault, um, I'm out of the story. Or I'm, even if it's nonfiction, I'm out of the argument that might be being made. 
and I'm looking at uh, mistakes, sentences, uh, a cliche or a stereotype, Walmart language, where somebody has just reached for the obvious word and not sought something that's compatible with your voice, the person you happen to be as a writer. And uh, so I admire books that, that where the, the author is plainly delivered to the reader uh, a distinctive and uh, original, fresh-sounding voice. And my aim in my latest book was to have a conversational voice, more or less, uh, that, uh, that in some ways replicated the way I, I try to speak. And your most recent book is newly published. Uh, it's called Dad's Maybe Book. Um, and, and why this book? It's been, been a, a bit of time since your last book. Why this one? Yes, it's been 17 years since my last book. I became a father at 58 years old, and I was determined that I was going to be a good father. And I realized that I couldn't be a good father, um, always present for my children. If I'm trying to write a novel, if I'm devoting 12, 14 hours a day to it, and then devoting the rest of my time to worrying about it and losing sleep over it and all the things that, that happen when you're not actually at the, the computer. I had to be there for my children. And so I, I essentially quit for many years. Occasionally I'd write a little love letter to my kids and over seven or eight years, this stack of love letters is the best way I can say it began to pile up. I had 40 or 50 or 60 pages, something on that order. There were in a desk drawer that I hoped one day my children might, when they're grown up, might find long after I'm dead. And, and hear the sound of their dad's voice talking to them about the things they'd done and things I'd thought about my own life, my time at war, my childhood. So they'd, they'd get to know a father who wouldn't be present at that age. I'd be gone, long gone. And I did this mainly because I, I wish my own dad had left me something like that. And I, I wanted to leave this gift for my kids. So the book began that way, but it, it wasn't a book. It was, it was just a stack of letters to my kids. And at one point, my younger child, his name is Tad, saw the stack, didn't read them, but saw the papers and asked what it was. And I said, these are messages to you. And he said, well, it sort of looks like it could be a book. And I said, well, I doubt it, that I'm not intending to write one. And he said, you should. And I said, why? And he said, well, because other kids might want to hear um, the same kinds of things from their fathers and maybe they'll get something and maybe other fathers will want to have their own experience validated or or get ideas to do their own, write their own letters. So my kid who had seven or eight, he really planted the idea that maybe this could become a book. This is after eight years of you know jotting these letters down to them. And it was only then that I really began 
to seriously think this could be a book. Do you feel like the process of writing the book, did that change um, the way that you were engaging with the kids? Um, because it seems like they were engaging in the process as well, n- a number of points along the way. It changed only in the sense that I began noticing more um, things that otherwise might have I might have chuckled at or or gotten angry about or any other emotion caught my attention as a writer. And I didn't really jot down notes. I only would use material if I remembered it, if it seemed important enough that I could remember the things that had happened along the way. But I did begin listening to my kids in a new way. The thought of maybe putting that episode in a, in a book one of the kids might have come home, for example, with a bad grade at a test and be really upset. And we'd chat about it, and I would say grades aren't everything, and they'd say, well, there's something. Otherwise, teachers wouldn't give them. And I'd say, well, that's true. And that would stick with me. Um, as it did just now when you brought this up. That I didn't put that anecdote in the book, but I should have. I just I didn't do it. I can't even remember why I didn't use it. But I did begin listening differently and uh, and asking them questions along the way that I may not have asked otherwise. How do you feel about this or that? And on only a couple of occasions did I ask them to do something for the, for the book I was writing. At one point, I asked my older child, Timmy, who at the time was 10 years old or 11, something like that to read a story by Ernest Hemingway and tell me what he thought about it. And I told him, I just picked out randomly a story called The Killers about a a boxer who may or may not have thrown a fight in Chicago and a gambler who was angry and sends two thugs to kill this boxer. And uh, the boxer says, I'm tired of running. I'm going to just lie here in my bed. And I asked Timmy what he thought of that after after he read the story. And he said, I really, I said, what, what do you think about a boxer just lying there waiting to be killed? And Timmy said, I wasn't thinking about that. I was thinking about, don't boxers get hit in the head? And I said, yes. And he said, don't they hit other people in the head? And I said, yes. And he said, why would anybody want to be a boxer? That's what I'm thinking. That's what I was thinking about. And it struck me as sort of funny, but also a commentary on, on what I do for a living, writing books, is that you kind of brush up against people. They don't always take what you write in the way that you think they may. Um, they... The, the books are taken through the temperament of the reader and the values a reader brings to the book, the background, the life history. All those things determine what, how a reader will respond to a book. And it's, it, those responses I've learned over all these years of writing to be radically different from reader to reader. And did the boys really do the homework assignments that you delineated, or are you straw-hatting us on that one? Well, I assigned them. They didn't, they didn't do them all. They did most of them, yeah. Some of them are still waiting. I assigned a 
16-mile march to them, as you may remember from the book, to give them the notion that war is not a glamorous thing. It's exhausting and monotonous and fatiguing most of the time. Um, the, the monotony is punctuated by moments of just absolute horror, of course. But I wanted them to get a feel for this the, the idea that war is not this glamorous thing they a child might think it is. And uh, they they didn't complete that assignment. <laughs> I'm, st- I'm still waiting for them to do it. Yeah, you con- included your wife in on that one. I'm wondering if she ever set off even. Um, <laughs> she, she's, a, she's a crossfitter. She loves that sort of thing. She would have done it in a heartbeat. And let's talk a little bit about language. Um, has language always been so important to you? Have you always been so aware of language? Yes. In the time I was a little boy, it's, it's, uh, I was six or seven years old, and I remember looking at the words in what was then called a wonder book. I don't even know if they exist anymore. They were books with large type and lots of pictures for kids. Often they were retellings of fairy tales and so on, but there were also original books. I remember just staring at the words, thinking how kind of miraculous they were. That I could read this word, house or dog or whatever the word might be, and a picture would come into my head as a result of these letters on the page. And how what a miracle it is that a word can conjure up images in the in other in the heads of readers. And it's astonished me decades later to learn that Hemingway, Ernest Hemingway, felt exactly the same way about individual words. How he said that every time I looked at a word that is fresh to me, I'll feel this this sense of wonderment at just the look of the word and what it does to my heart, how it makes it, I'm sort of paraphrasing now, but how it makes your heart race or how it calms you down or causes a chuckle. So yeah, from the time I was a little boy, I was that way and I remain that way to this day. It's as if sometimes seeing a word for the very first time, especially if you hear it slightly out of context, and it's the word house may be used in a context that's brand new that makes you look at that word in a new way. Like, my heart is a house for emotion or something like that. You you talk about some, some great words in the book, shenanigans and plunging and confident. Shenanigans. Shenanigans is good. Yes. Um, do you have a favorite word that, that came from this work or that has since um, finishing the work uh, been a word that has been with you and, and floating in your head? Or that you've embraced? Well, it's not from the book exactly. It, there has been a word floating in my head for a few days. It comes from a piece of homework that my older kid, he's a junior in high school, brought home. It was a history reading of a primary document from the colonial American era. And the word was inculcate. And uh, Timmy asked me, what, what does that mean? Well, I know what it means, but it's an extremely hard word to, to define without going to a dictionary. 
And so I said to him, what do you think it means in the context of the sentence? And Timmy studied the sentence silently for quite a while, more than a minute, and thought about it. And said, does it mean inoculate? And you notice that has many of the same letters in it, inculcate Mm -hmm. and inoculate. And I said, well, kind of. It kind of does mean that, to inculcate an idea and so on. But I said, not quite. And then he looked it up and got to getting a dictionary definition from Webster. And we talked about the similarity of those two words and and how close they are in their meaning, but not identical. So that word that word has been going through my head now. So it's funny you should ask that because even this morning I thought about it. Why is the word choice we use in regard to war so critical? I'm sorry, I couldn't quite follow that. Um, I, I was asking, why is the word choice, the, the words we choose to use in regard to war, so critical? You spend um, quite a bit of time in the book talking about that. <laughs> talking. Others might use another right. word. Um, but I I'll devote a whole chapter discussing. to that word. Yes, You're right. yes. Yeah, I devote a chapter to it in a tongue-in-cheek mm-hmm. kind of way, mm-hmm. but also in a very serious way. Mm-hmm. The word war has become, it's used in so many contexts, uh, war on poverty, war on drugs, global war on terror, war horse, war medals, that the word has lost its nastiness and its, its the quality of death that it contains. And I proposed that we erase the word from our dictionaries and off, take it off our tongues and instead say, killing people, including children, which is literally what the original meaning of war was in the English language. Uh, It wasn't applied in a metaphorical sense. It It was meant killing people. And I suggested the Gettysburg Address be rewritten and that we call the Civil War the Civil People Killing, including children, and so on as a way of making what is so abstract and so euphemistic now as to be less than, it doesn't uh, have a reference that is the thing itself, which is killing people, including children. And uh, I know that my idea and my proposal, of course, will never be taken. On the other hand, it's a way of reminding my readers especially my literal-minded readers who want literalism in religion or culture or politics, that if you want to be literal, let's be literal. And let's not put our heads in the sand by so blithely and matter-of-factly using that war, that word war. And if it's one thing to stand up before your Kiwanis Club or your PTA and speak out in favor of the war on terror, another thing to stand up and say you want to kill people including children for this war this war this this military thing and i think it'd be a little more difficult to get those words off your tongue and at least it would be a reminder of what it is you're so belligerent about 
want to talk a little bit about hypocrisy and and um, you're making me think, you know, not only the moments of the book where it was sad and where it was funny, but some shocking moments. And, and one I think that, that surprised me the most was you're speaking about the early draft and that of World War Two and, and I think it was World War Two and, and your father and that originally it was county people who selected who would go to war, that it wasn't a, a random picking or based on anything really other than uh, who these county, and I'm not sure how they were chosen, um, heads decided. Yes, people think of the draft back during the Vietnam War as, as the lottery, and it was it became a lottery where birthdays were chosen and you were selected to go into the military based on just a random chance of your of your day of your birth. But when I was drafted, it, that lottery did not exist, and people were chosen by a local hometown draft board. Uh, they had the ages and the names of all the people from a hometown, sometimes a county, sometimes a couple of counties, depending on the, you know, the size of each county. And then there would be a board of seven or eight citizens of the town, half usually women, half usually men. And they'd be mothers and fathers themselves, many of them. Um, and they would choose the people who would go. So it was a much more personal sort of choice. It was someone they probably knew or the son of someone they probably knew uh, whom they would choose to go off to, to, to war. And um, many of the people doing the choices, not all, but many of them, probably couldn't have found Hanoi on a map or even spelled the word without spotting them in the vowels and consonants. They, some of them, you weren't required to read a newspaper, you weren't required to take a history test, you weren't required to pay attention to the reasons for the war, whether they were good or bad or somewhere in between. You simply had the power to decide who was going to go to a war without knowing much about it. Uh, I'm sure some did know a lot, but others didn't. And it, it, uh, and the, and the personal quality of it, well, if an individual's name would be chosen, could be based on the reputation of the kid, or the reputation of the family in the town. Could be based on a lot of things. Whether there was a dispute with the father between a draft board member and the father of a potential draftee, and maybe that would color the decision. All kinds of these personal variables were part of the of the choice of who went to fight and who didn't. One of your boys, I'm I'm making light now because one of your boys is going to have a field day when he gets to page two ninety seven and he sees all of your italics that you use because I remember earlier <laughs> in the book you're giving him a hard time for yeah. using italics and so we want to share out that page. I can't remember if it was for Timmy or Tom, Tad, but before you before you give them their copy because it's going to be like I a know. lot of italics there. Yeah, yeah, I was talking. It was just Timmy, I believe, when he had written a paper, and I was saying, "Dad, I think you overuse the italics a little. You should, you know, save them for special occasions." And he said, "Well, you use them." And I said, "Yeah, I do, but I try to save them too. I mean, I 
constantly deleting them and then putting them back in, trying to give a sense of emphasis here and there. And he said, well, uh, I can't remember how this conversation went exactly, but inexactly it it went to the point where he said, I'm going to say a sentence and I'll bet you use italics. (laughs) And and I did it. I did it. I emphasized the word would. I bet you would. I bet you would would use italics, and that, that's how we said it. So I got a little writing lesson from my own kid. And are you still a magician? I didn't mention it in the intro because I noticed that it didn't come up as much in the second half of the book. Um, but it, it takes center stage, so to speak, in in the first half. And uh, your love for magic and your dedication to creating the illusions and, and the community aspect that you develop around it with the shows that you put on in, in the house? Well, that's a great question. It, uh, two chapters about my hobby of doing magic. One is somewhere early on and one is later in the book. Uh, both pretty short. Second one, very short. There are two things I'd love to say about that. One is that my editor wasn't keen about having a a lot more magic in the book. I was keen on having a lot more. There there was much that didn't appear in the book that I thought uh, ought to have. But I listened to him and and, uh, talked to my wife, who's my main editor, really, who reads every word I write and usually, usually finds things to fix, change. And she kind of agreed that uh, that I was drawing too much of a parallel between uh, this hobby of doing magic and the illusions one creates when you're writing a novel, or even doing a piece of nonfiction, the illusion that Timmy and Tad are with us on a page. I don't know what that bell was. I have no idea. Did you hear that? No, no, I didn't hear that. Oh, there was a bell ringing on my phone. Maybe it was some um, kind of one of those coincidences you talk about. Maybe, maybe it was my editor. Saying, <laughs> you keep all that magic stuff out. Um, but I thought I think I think that there's no accident that a kid who once loved doing magic and now a man who still loves doing it would be a, a novelist and a story writer. But the creation of illusion, the creation of mystery, not just a, not just plot mysteries, but the mystery of where we go when we die, and is there such a thing as reincarnation, and and, and things, the mystery of who we all are, even, I'm a mystery to myself in most ways, I don't know why I do most of what I do do, um, and I certainly don't know why I do some of the bad things that I've done in my life, like smoke and costs now and that and things I don't know why and those interests those mysteries are just completely fascinating to me I'm not much intrigued by the things that are explicable to me that I do feel I understand that they, they become banal and trite to me but the mysteries all around me does she love me how much well I can't crawl into her head and get the answer to that. You, you, it, it, you have to take kind of estimates of what people say and how they behave and do your best to answer that question. But it's never wholly answerable because people do get surprised. That's out of character. That 
I couldn't believe she'd do that to me. Things like that. We've all, at some point in our lives, said things like that, where we've been fooled. So as a novelist, I still feel I'm doing a kind of magic. It's not sleight of hand exactly, but it's sleight of mind, something like that. It seems there's also a direct relationship between magic and and not only your writing, but with your post-Vietnam experience and untangling that. Um, You talk about disentangling the threads of reality and relationship of Mm -hmm. it being a challenge for Hemingway's character and a farewell to arms. Mm -hmm. Um, And throughout the book, you're sharing with us your navigation of um, disentangling realities from the experience of the war and the memories and and trying to sort out what was illusion absolutely it's still i'm still disentangling it and i will never finish that process it's memory begin with it's a fallible thing that i i i cannot and i doubt you can or anybody can remember much of yesterday Every word we spoke, every what came first, what came second, all the dialogue that comes out of a television set or a radio, was it spoken to us in a grocery store? And what about a week from yesterday, going backward in history? Or what about seven years ago? How much do we remember, you know, July 4th um, and what we did on that July 4th? 2008 or whatever it may be. And what about days that aren't as prominent as July 4th? What about March 7th? How much do you remember of March 7th, 1999? Very few people are going to remember much. Um, and if they do, it's, it's, I think, purely by coincidence. So memory, Nabokov tells us, memory speaks, but it stutters. And it speaks in ellipses, at least for me. And what I'm left with is the, is the illusion of memory. I have a, of who I, who, who I am. But if I can't remember most of what I've done and said in my life, 99% of it, it, it's a little fictitious to say, you know, my memory is solid. It's really not. It's essentially composed of a few short, YouTube clips and a lot of still photographs um, that have no no sense of chronology or very little sense of it. Um, and I try to replicate that in the book as much as I can. That sense of, that's why the title is Maybe Book. It's the it's that maybe things were this way, but. My recollections are incomplete. My knowledge of myself is incomplete. And because I'm so, I've been so hurt by and angry at absolutism, things people are absolute in their declarations about the world, I think that I wanted to give that maybe in a sense, both to my own life and maybe to the lives of some of my readers. You said in the book, if we cannot recall our lives, how can we pretend to explain our lives? It, it is guesswork. Right. So do you feel a need to explain your life? And, and do you feel like the book helped to, to do that? And, and to whom? Well, to my children initially, now to all my readers, but initially for Kimmy and Tad. And in a way, 
that's still the primary desire I have when my book tour is finished and the book is out there in the world. My, my main audience are still going to be two precious little boys. Uh, it, it, it was, the, my intent was from the beginning to leave some love for them and, and leave it through stories stories about their own lives and my own, along with a little bit of knowledge, but always amended or qualified. Um, if you'll notice that throughout the book, the anecdotes that I tell are pretty short for the most part. Um, and they almost always have no, no, nothing that precedes them and nothing that follows them. They, they live in a kind of vacuum. One day we were watching television together and Tad asked me, how old was that guy, Methuselah, the one in the Bible? And I said, oh, I don't know, maybe a thousand years old. And Tad said, wow. And then a whole hour went by as we were watching a basketball game. And out of the blue, Tad said, what exactly did he eat? <laughs> Well, it made me it made me chuckle, it made you chuckle, and and yet it, it it's it's extremely brief. I don't know what happened before Tad came into that room. I can't remember what afterward. It lives as a separate anecdote, and that's more or less true of my life as a whole. It's not entirely, but pretty much a, a separate. Each memory is a separate thing that isn't lined up in a neat linear sequence, um, which is the, the kind of the general uh, illusion we live with. Those anecdotes live in their own dimension. And most often they replay themselves over and over in my memory. So let's talk about that a little bit in relationship to writing. Um, you talk about the need to trust your own story when, when writing. Um, and so maybe we can talk a little about what that means. And, and in relationship to that, how can truth be fluid? Yes. Uh, trusting one's own story is, for me, one of the hardest things to, to make myself do. Uh, I went to high school. I went to college. I went to graduate school. And I was taught through all those years the techniques of analysis of explanation usually what what were the causes of world war one and i would memorize them as best i could try to understand them as best i could and that's a different thing than writing an imaginative piece of work and to give yourself over to the story itself, the, the behaviors and the speech of the characters, the unfoldingness of the story, and to trust the, 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 what people say and what they do and to follow that without trying to intentionally push it in a direction, an outline, like in an outline where I want to get to the conclusion, the the story has to be allowed to conclude itself. So for me, when I'm writing best, I feel like I'm in a, a daydream or maybe even a night dream where I'm 
writing sentences and I'm looking at a piece of paper or at a computer screen, but through the paper or through the computer screen, I'm watching Jack fall in love with Jill and I'm writing the sentences almost to keep up with the falling in loveness as it occurs. And the, the, the question of what next, what happens after the love falls, to, to try to see what, what will happen next in the behavior and the speech of the characters. So if a character says, I love you, we want to get married, you, you, I kind of wait for Jill to say yes or no, or maybe, or maybe someday, maybe another life. We can, we can unite that way, but I don't try to enforce it on it. And it's that, that's what I mean by trusting a story, listening and sort of seeing this unfolding daydream before you. And with, without that quality, a reader, I fear, will never be surprised, will never feel that delight of, oh, I wouldn't have expected that, but now I see why that happened. Um, and if a reader is not surprised, the opposite of that is predictability and stereotypy and, and boredom, a kind of dullness, and stories die of of dullness, they, they, they go dead and, and, they're, and they're thrown against a wall by a disgruntled reader. So that's what I mean by trusting it. It's, it's, it's an intense listening and an intense dreaming as the fingers try to catch up uh, in writing and putting down language. You wrote, a, a writer of stories does not only write about the world as it is, but also about the world as it almost is, or as it could be, or as it should be. And you say the essential object of fi fiction is not to explain. Um, wh what do you see as the essential object of fiction? Transfix. Um, carry a reader into a, a dream and the hope that the dream will mean something to the reader. And by mean something, I don't mean just intellectually. I mean it'll mean something to a reader's heart and a reader's stomach and the nape of a reader's neck. If it's something scary happens to the tear ducts of the reader, to the whatever the laugh ducks are. I'm not sure if such a thing mm -hmm. exists, but something makes us laugh. So the appeal is to that, that wholeness of the human being is, 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 is for me the opposite of explaining something. But for me, explanation diminishes that which is being explained. It makes it explicable. And there's the illusion of understanding something that that I'm always skeptical about. That I, I, whenever I believe I've understood something and, and wholly have helped wholly explained it, I'm surprised by some new event that makes me modify and amend what I had previously taken as absolute. And explanation is like I draw this example in the book, but it's like joining a magician backstage and 
you learn how a trick is done and the trick bores you. It becomes mechanical and banal and uninteresting. And it can no longer bring that 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 little poof inside a body when a when a woman vanishes out of you know thin air and she's just gone, or when a playing card appears at the fingertips of an empty hand. It, it, if you know how it's done and it, it's explained, it's, it somehow diminishes a thing. And um, I think the human spirit is fascinated by the unknown and the unknowable and we're fascinated by that which we can't wholly explain. I mean, we want to know and we're sometimes frustrated that we don't know, but I think we're still fascinated by it. We, the readers, join you on a number of occasions at 3 a.m. in your kitchen and it seems that oftentimes you may be wrestling with those same uh, feelings of um, wrestling with the, the memories and the experience of, of Vietnam. You say, you mention a sensation, whatever it is that reminds you a bit of what you'd once experienced in Vietnam after a fire f- fight ended, when something was so excruciatingly present became so shockingly absent. Yeah, it's one of the, my favorite lines in the book. It's, um, it's, it's, I can't take credit for it. It becomes, it's mysterious how it comes. It, I didn't will that line, but it's, it gives me the shivers that the world, not just in Vietnam, but the, the, the birth of my first child was excruciatingly present. It was, it was, what, what, what is this human being going to look like? And will it come out alive? And may I, will I keep it alive? There's a, and then after a few weeks, that moment is shockingly gone. It's just absent. Um, that at once made you gape with a mixture of joy and, and terror. It has diminished, and and you're busy changing diapers and so on. Well, the same is true in war, that the world explodes around you, and death is proximate. It's right around the corner, the next second, the next millisecond. I'll be dead, I'll be dead, I'll be dead. And then that instant ends sort of the way a rain ends, just sort of, it diminishes, and then a few drops, and it's over. And the shocking silence when the world had been exploding and noisy and terrifying all around you, is, is it's, it's shockingly absent. Um, the, the line is used in a chapter that is about acid reflux and how my, my older boy was born with it, and for the first several months of his life did not stop crying day and night all the time and crying in a hissing, shrieking, angry, hating kind of way as if he hated being alive. It was, it was beyond anything I'd experienced. Um, and, and just even as I'm saying these words to you, I feel I'm not doing justice to how terrible it was. 
And we'd call and call and call the pediatrician or the pediatric nurse, and we'd get all this advice about babies cry, you got to live with it, and put them on top of the clothes dryer and a basket. <sighs> and, you know, I mean, we get the same advice a billion times, and we'd try it. Drive the kid around in your car, and we'd put on, you know, 10,000 miles. I'm exaggerating, but yeah. a lot of miles. And, and he didn't stop crying. And finally, my wife started crying. She just couldn't stand it anymore. And I found her in the foyer next to the boy's bedroom, and where he lay shrieking in his crib. And she just was, she just couldn't stop weeping. And this is after months of this. And we went to an, I just put us all in a car and we drove to an emergency room. And, and after sitting around for like five hours, uh, we finally got the prescriptions. I mentioned in the book that Xanax for me and Xanax for me. <laughs> and, and we got Prilosec for the little the boy. And it ended instantly. He was acid reflux disease. Eating hurt and not eating hurt. They both hurt. And he was in constant pain. So that's that. that so one word, one, one moment, the world was, you know, was so excruciatingly present. And then the next, it seemed like the next instant, it was so quiet as to be even a little scary in its own quietude. Can this last? And it's, it's, so you have a great memory for the language mm-hmm. that I like. I must tell you, that the story. Well, sentences I'm proud of. People ask me often in other interviews, what are you most proud about? And I give them the answer, the sentences. And they look at me with it as if that, that can't matter. <laughs> to me, it's all that matters. <laughs> Nothing else can matter without the sentences. Yep, the sentences are pretty much it. don't you just it. follow me around the country and this book tour? Just, you, you ask the questions. All right. So, so another one on, on that same note is those moments pop up um, for any everyone, you know, as their children grow. And at one point, when when one of your sons is a little older, you start to think about the possibility of of keeping him safe and and him dying. And you say, "I'm I'm afraid. I will always be afraid." And I'm mm-hmm. I'm wondering if you were more or less afraid after Vietnam, or if this was something you were aware of since you were little. I think since I was a boy, it was exacerbated by Vietnam, I'm sure. And the fear of bad things pending right over the horizon. But there used to be bad things that would happen to me. And now it's more uh, that something terrible happened to my children. And by terrible, I mean death. They'll get in an accident or they'll come down with some dread disease or they'll be made to go off to some war for no good reason. And I wish I could remember exactly what I thought this morning, but I had to drive to TSA to get a pre-check saying, you know, to apply for pre-check so I don't have to stand in those long lines Mm -hmm. on this book tour. And on the drive home, I was thinking of my older son, Timmy, who's now 16 years old. What it was, I just can't remember. I wish I could. But this fear of death, something terrible happening to him, just overcame me as I was driving. I thought, God, I hope that can happen. Don't that happen. Don't let that happen. And now it's, it's 
vanished, but it periodically returns to me. And I think that's got to be true for most parents that that it was my dominant fear and one, one of the dominant reasons that I fought against being a father in the first place. I was afraid I couldn't keep a child alive. No experience with it. Uh, don't like all the things that accompany, you know, changing diapers and preparing baby food in bottles. I hate all of it. I still hate it. I hated it then. I still do. But I was mostly afraid that that this life is in my hands, that I've got to be there and can't be looking away. And and it's that that urge is, is still there for me. It's, but it's no longer fear of things happening to me. It's a fear of what the world can do to these precious boys of mine. In your hands and in your heart, in a way that you cannot extract, even if, you know, you don't want to, but there are moments where it would certainly make life easier if, if you could. You, you yeah. draw the conclusion that maybe Hemingway's writings aren't about war at all but every person's certain death, the, the universal mortality. Um, are your prior books about war, or are they about something other? Something other. I don't write about military maneuvers. I don't care about them, or bombs, or bullets, or muzzle velocities, or saluting, or all that. To the chagrin of your boys. I'm sorry? To the chagrin of your boys, I think. <laughs> Right, you should be my boys. Well said. <laughs> I think they wish I did, but I do care about the. I care about the moral aspect of people killing other people. That, especially when children end up getting killed, as is now the case, lots of the time happen at Hiroshima, or happens in the Middle East, and it sure as hell happened in Vietnam. It's not always intentional. Most often it's not, but it's a consequence of making war. They wouldn't have died without the bombs and the bullets and the napalm. And uh, I can't help asking 50 years later in my case, for what? I go to places now, colleges, and after I'll give a talk, somebody will raise a hand and seven or eight times the question has been phrased differently but the same question who won that the asker of course is nobody but the fact that the the asker of the question college freshman or junior doesn't know even who won a war makes you wonder question the war itself if if I were to make a list of, as I did in the book, of all the wars throughout human history, most of us are not going to even recognize the name of the war, much less remember the 8 million dead in the Anlushan Rebellion or the Paraguayan Revolt or the Moorish Wars or the Mongol Conquest, much less what the war was about and so on. It makes you question why all the dead people Vietnam was peddled to us as a country by the domino theory that countries will fall to communism all across Asia. It was sold to us that we'll lose our liberties, that American honor will be besmirched if we lose this war. 
or that Ho Chi Minh and his cohorts will show up in the streets of Seattle. All those arguments were used. Well, we lost the war, the worst possible outcome, and none of that happened. Dominoes did not fall. In fact, if they did fall, they felt the opposite way. They fell toward fascism, not communism in Burma and Malaysia and so on, Thailand. And Ho Chi Minh did not land in Seattle. And that who wakes up every day thinking, oh, my honor is besmirched. I'm a veteran of the war, and I don't wake up feeling that way. And I doubt anybody else does either. Uh, in fact, we think about it so little, Vietnam, that is, but it's almost as if it hadn't happened for the most part. Um, there is a, my wife bought me a shirt for Christmas, last Christmas, and it says, Made in Vietnam on the tag, and I wear that every time I give a talk, because it's a reminder that 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 catastrophe did not occur, that we were that sold us on killing 3 million people. It didn't happen the same way in the Middle East. There weren't any weapons of mass destruction. The war was sold to us. That's why we're going to do it. And there weren't any. It's as if Pearl Harbor hadn't happened. You can hear the outrage beginning to build in my voice. Mm -hmm. Now I, I, mean, I get angry about these things. And I get angrier on my children about them. I'll, I'll try to express some of these things to them. And they do listen. They, they do feel my outrage about it. I'm not sure they understand the historical detail I'm talking about. But they do hear something that was brought home with me from that war. Found its way into my life ever after has stayed there and now has wormed its way into dad's maybe book. One of the things that you hope for your boys is a life of outrage. Um, what is that? What do you mean by that? Well, I think you heard it in my voice. Yeah. That it's, 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 um, and, and why that? Yeah. Why, why, why I'll do you want the, that for look, them? Uh, As opposed to what? Because, it, because I want them to be thinking moral, human beings who are unwilling to kill people for less than great reasons. The reason had been pretty good before you go off killing 3 million people. Our country was divided, and the best you can say about Vietnam was that certain blood was shed for uncertain reasons. Uh, even now, the reasons behind that war are largely mysterious to almost everybody um, under the age of, say, I don't know, 60 or so. And even to those of us over 60, the reasons were always suspect. We've got a couple minutes left. Somebody, somebody, somebody okay. just rang my doorbell. Okay. I don't know. I have no idea who it is. Okay. Can we just pause? Yeah, it? we can pause and you can see and then we'll, we'll finish up. Yeah. I'm looking out the door and I can see the, the two men in, in jeans. I'll be right back with you. Okay, okay no worries. It was the next interviewer I told you about. Oh, okay. So, so we'll we'll just we'll finish up. You and I'll have to talk another time about Hemingway because I got to say I'm with your boys. I'm not sure you really do like Hemingway. <laughs> you adore some <laughs> yeah. of the stories. Well, it's a love. It's a love hate. Relationship. Right. It's a love hate relationship. We won't have time for that today. So, so um, okay. we'll just finish up with well, one you're more question. To call, you're welcome to call back whenever you'd like. All right. All right. So. 
Um, I want to read something before we end that you wrote. You you wrote, Therefore, during what time is left to me, I expect no reconciliations, no revelations, no profundities, no beatific grace, and no peaceful resignation to the ways of the universe. I expect only diminishment and eradication. And upon reading that, I my thought was, I think the boys would tell you to raise your expectations. <laughs> they would? I think your boys would tell you to raise those expectations. I wish they would tell me that, but I think that their expectations of their own dad are even less than my own. (laughs) (laughs) If I I know them. I I think then they've been set by you. Um, You also tell the boys, pretend your life is a story and write a good one. Do you feel you you have and are writing a good one? Yes, that, that I do feel that. That I take solace in that, that I do feel that, you know, it's, um, it's a struggle to do that, but I think, yes. All right. Well, thank you so much, Tim O'Brien. Great pleasure. For, for joining great us. Thank you. And for your book, Dad's Maybe Book. Okay, thank All you. All right. Thanks. Okay, bye-bye. Okay. Bye now. Thanks. Thanks.